Welcome to the Travel Therapy Mentor Podcast, your number one source for travel therapy information and education, hosted by travel physical therapist duo Jared and Whitney. Join us every other week on Facebook Live to learn about a new travel therapy topic or listen to the replay right here on our podcast. If you're new to travel therapy and ready to get started, contact us to get connected with the travel therapy recruiters and companies we recommend by visiting TravelTherapyMentor.com slash recruiters. Again, that's TravelTherapyMentor.com slash recruiters. If you're ready to remove the guesswork and jumpstart your travel therapy career, let us teach you step-by-step everything you need to know to get started and to be financially successful as a traveler by enrolling in our comprehensive travel therapy course titled Becoming a Financially Successful Travel Therapist. You can visit TravelTherapyMentor.com course and use the discount code TRAVEL to save $150 on our course. Again, that's TravelTherapyMentor.com course and the discount code is TRAVEL. And if you're looking for the best way to get your CEUs online as a traveler who's always on the go, you can use our discount code to get the best rate on an annual MedBridge subscription, which is where we get all of our online CEUs. Use code FIFTHWHEELPT, that's F-I-F-T-H-W-H-E-E-L-P-T, for the discount, all one word. And last, if you're interested in getting started with credit card hacking to take advantage of free or low-cost travel like we do, check out our top credit card recommendations for travelers at TravelTherapyMentor.com credit. Again, that's TravelTherapyMentor.com credit. All right, and now on to this week's episode. Hey everyone. Hey guys. Welcome to another Travel Therapy Mentor live video. Tonight we're doing a live course member Q&A. We've uh, gathered some questions over the last week or so um, from you guys and any questions that you had and we're also going to answer any questions that you have um, joining on here live. So uh, Whitney's going to introduce us and uh, I guess I actually don't have to get this video shared. So um, I think we got about <laughs> how many questions? Uh I don't know, a couple, at least a dozen. Um, Sorry, we're doing our same introductions like we normally do (laughs) for our regular live videos, but this one is just for our course member group. Um, We got questions from you guys throughout the week. Um, Those of you guys that are currently in our travel therapy course, um, some of you guys sent us messages, um, commented on Facebook. So thank you guys who sent in questions. I know some of you guys can't watch live, but um, you'll watch later. If you are watching live, feel free to say hey in the comments. You're welcome to ask us any questions that you would like to ask us live. Um, we want this to be, you know, more in depth. Obviously, you guys all have access to our course, which has um, everything that we could think of from A to Z for how to get started and how to be financially successful as a traveler. But inevitably, questions do come up. Um, we definitely want to help you guys with any questions you have about like current scenarios that you're going through um, as you're on contract, if you're working with recruiters, if you're doing interviews. Um, we have plenty of time to talk to you guys through all that. Um, We also got quite a few questions about finance things because a lot of you guys may have already started traveling, but maybe you have more in-depth questions about getting into your finances and that sort of thing. Yeah, one thing I really like about these questions, we used to do like open to everybody and we'd get a lot of questions that were extremely basic, but you guys have really good questions that are uh, making us think. So it's nice to get some more in-depth questions and, um, you know, pass the basics and and we can talk about a lot of these things and go more in-depth, which is nice. Yep. Um, and we will share this video later um, to our podcast so that more of our audience can listen and hear the answers. Um, but these questions are only from our course group members because we want to take a little more time to um, give feedback and answers to our course group members. All right, so we'll dive into some questions that we got earlier this week. Um, so one of our course group members said they're starting their first contract on Monday. Congratulations. 
Um, wanted to know some special considerations for starting your first day of a travel contract. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say the most important thing that I've learned over time um, for starting your first week is that expect to be kind of stressed out on the first week. Uh, every time, I don't know if it's just me, um, but every time when we go into an assignment, I feel a little stressed, like a little overwhelmed. There's a lot of new things. I usually feel like it's unmanageable or something in the beginning. I don't know, I just like, I feel like the first week is kind of tough. And so if I go in expecting that, then I don't feel so bad about it. And the thing about it, not every assignment is like this, but if I go in expecting that it's gonna be like that, then I'm not so, um, I guess, stressed out or like upset if it, if it does feel that way. But the important thing to remember is after that first week or maybe two weeks, it usually gets exponentially easier. And there's been so many times where I've started an assignment, I felt real stressed out or overwhelmed the first week, and then by like six or seven weeks in, I'm like, wow, why did I feel that way? This is really easy, um, everything's laid back, I feel like I could stay here. And, and the difference is that as a traveler, when you, when you get to a new assignment, you jump in and you have all new patients and coworkers and the new documentation system, it just feels difficult. But once you get past that, it, it gets easier and easier. And then I really think that every subsequent assignment gets easier too, because you get used to that process. You know what it's going to be like. So just expect the first week that it's going to feel difficult and that it's going to get easier. Yeah, and I would just say, you know, go into your first day open-minded because it, it may go great. It may be a little bit challenging. You may feel a little overwhelmed, but every assignment is going to be different. So some of them, you might feel really welcomed. You might have a great orientation. They might really be easing you into it. Um, some of them, the staff's going to be really welcoming. On the flip side, some of them, the staff may not be quite as welcoming. Maybe they're really busy and they're really stressed and they just need your help. Um, and maybe they're going to make you hit the ground running. So. It's hard to know exactly what to expect your first day. Hopefully you try to get a little bit of an insight about what the ramp up time was gonna be and the training was gonna be and what your first day might look like during your phone interview. That's your best opportunity to prepare for what you're walking into, but you never really know. You might get there and it could be completely different than what you think, but hopefully it'll go well. Go into it with an open mind. Just know that you're there to help them. They hired you for a reason and so don't feel guilty. Um, a lot of people get there and they're like, oh gosh, I know they're paying me so much money to be here and um, I really wanted this contract so if, if I feel like they gave me a lot of work on the first day, I'm just going to stay here for 10 hours until I can get it done. Don't do that. Just say the amount of time that you're supposed to clock in and you're supposed to clock out and just know, okay, even if you didn't get everything done they asked of you that first day, it's fine. Go in the next day and um, you know, regroup and talk to the manager and keep an open line of communication. But definitely just feel it out for that first day and that first week. If after the first week it's not exactly what you expected, it's, um, you know, they're asking too much of you productivity-wise, it might be a good opportunity to have a conversation with your recruiter, um, also to have a conversation with the manager just to manage those expectations and say, this isn't what I signed up for, you know, the productivity, I'm not able to meet it, that sort of thing. But Hopefully your first day will go really well. Um, just go into it, make try to make a good first impression, and hopefully they'll be really excited to have you, and it'll go really smoothly. Yeah, you always get a lot more efficient. So if it feels like you're not able to keep up or the productivity is too difficult in the beginning, give it time because you always get more efficient as, as time goes on. Yeah, but every assignment will be different. Hopefully you have a great uh, first day at your new assignment. Um, but if you, as always, if you have any questions, if it's not going the way you thought, let us know and reach out. Yeah, and uh, I don't want to act like every assignment is really stressful because we've had some that are extremely easy the first week. So it's not always going to be like that. But if I go in thinking that it's going to be, then uh, it makes me feel a little better. It makes me feel like I'm prepared 
if things don't go perfectly. That's one way to look at it for sure. That's how I always do it. Yeah, I usually don't get, I don't know, I don't get that stressed. I always get like a little bit of, a little bit nervous going in the first day, but most of our assignments have gone really well. We've had one or two where they kind of threw us to the wolves the first day, but most of them have been, been really good. Whitney's a lot better at small talk and asking for help and things like that. I'm not good at that. So I think that's why sometimes I feel more overwhelmed than you do. Yeah, that could be it. Okay, so great first question. Um, okay, so, we had another question come from someone who's had um, been traveling for a little while now, and she's had a few of her contracts canceled. A couple of them have been like towards the end of the contract. They ended her contract early, maybe just a couple weeks early or a month early. She also had one that canceled before she ever started. Um, and so she's been feeling really discouraged because she's had like two or three contract cancellations. And so she said, um, why do, or sorry, um, how do you find stability in traveling after multiple cancel contracts? How can you prevent being canceled? So I would say the first thing, we've already told her this, but just to re re reiterate to everyone, um, it's not that common to have contracts canceled. Um, so I think this is mostly bad luck. Um, we've said this multiple times, but we have you know, traveled on and off for seven years each now and between the two of us. So I think we're at 15 years of combined traveling on and off and we've had one contract canceled. So it's not that common to get contracts canceled. Um, there are some ways though, some questions you can ask during an interview to know whether or not it's more or less likely to get a contract canceled. Uh, I would say one thing to ask about, one of the important questions to ask in your interview is why they need a traveler. So you have to think about if you're going to a facility and they say they need a traveler because you know they're not able to hire a permanent person, that means they're trying to hire a permanent person. They're just bringing you in temporarily, which means that if they happen to hire someone during your contract, your contract's gonna get canceled. So if you've had a streak of bad luck with contracts, I would ask about that. And I would try to go for contracts where that's less likely. And those are gonna be ones like a maternity leave or a short-term disability or something where there's a, a clear need for a traveler and uh, for a set period of time. Cause you're very unlikely to get canceled if someone's out for maternity leave. They need that, that person's gonna come back and they, they need someone to fill in during the time when they're gone. So it's very unlikely your contract's gonna get ended early. Whereas, like I said, if it's a, a contract where they're trying to hire and they do hire, then then you're, you're stuck there. Yeah, unfortunately that is the way that a lot of contracts are. A lot of them are trying to fill a void until they can hire a permanent person. And so you're not always gonna be able to avoid that, but um, we have found that quite often the rural locations are less likely to find a permanent candidate right away and they're more likely to keep you on even if they do hire a permanent person and they might want some overlap until that person ramps up and gets started. So we've had some pretty good luck, um, especially if it's a contract where they say they maybe, like if they talk about during the interview that there could even be an opportunity for you to extend. Well, that's a good sign right away because they're like, we probably are gonna need you for a little while. We've been having trouble finding someone. All right, sorry about that. I have no idea, this, tonight is not our night in terms of uh, Facebook Live, apparently. That's twice now that, that the videos got ended early. So yeah, we tried to disconnect from the Wi-Fi. Hopefully that will make a difference. Yeah, we haven't had that happen in a long time, but maybe there's something going on with our Wi-Fi. So um, tried to reconnect here with just using data. So hopefully the video works better now. Um, if you are watching live, let us know if everything looks good with the video now, because we're not on Wi-Fi anymore, we're on, um, on data. But we were um, in the middle of answering a question about contract cancellations. So um, to summarize, it's harder to know. I mean, there's no way for sure to prevent being canceled. But I will say that if you go for more rural areas or go for places that are not necessarily the top desirable contracts, those are going to be less likely to get canceled. So if you get a dream location like in Hawaii or San Diego, 
and they're having you there for a short time because they can't find a permanent person, it's really likely that that type of contract could, or I guess not really likely, but it's probably more likely that that type of contract could get canceled because maybe someone's gonna come in to fill the spot. Um, and as we've always said before, um, to, it also really depends on your discipline. So I know the person who had asked this, um, who had asked this question, who has had a few of her contracts canceled, is an occupational therapist. Um, unfortunately, OTs, um, it's probably a little bit more likely for OTs, for uh, PTAs and for CODAs. It's not as likely for PT and SLP because PT and SLP um, is just more in demand. There's more jobs than there are therapists. So um, it is a little bit tougher and contract cancellations are a little more common for OT, PTA, and CODA. So we always tell, especially those disciplines who might be a little more likely to get canceled, we always recommend that you have um, a backup plan, that you have savings, you have an emergency fund in case of a, a cancellation. Make sure that you're working with a few different recruiters um, so that way, if you do get your contract canceled, um, you know, they can work hard to try to uh, find you another contract right away. So hopefully you don't go that much time without missed work. Some other things to do as a contingency plan for uh, contract cancellations would be um, try not to get locked into housing for more than a month at a time. Try to do a month to month. So that way, worst case scenario, you're only out one month's rent, not more. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, housing, oh, try to get a 30-day cancellation notice in your contract if possible, so then you have at least 30 days to plan if you do get canceled. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's no way to prevent it, but if you ask questions and you try to find contracts that are, uh, you know, more certain in terms of just short-term needs instead of uh, they're looking for someone, you're gonna have a lot better odds in that situation. But, you know, I will say, like we said, we've had one contract canceled in all this time, and we normally go to places where they're looking for full-time staff. So even then, uh, I mean, it doesn't happen a lot, but yeah, like Whitney said, I think OT and assistants do get canceled more often just because the need is less than for PT and SLP. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing you can do to try to prevent it would just be to ask questions during the interview, find out if it's the type of place that might be likely to extend you longer, and if they say something about an extension, then that's a good sign they're probably gonna at least need you for the 13 weeks. Yep, um, okay. Why do travel companies reimburse mileage from one's tax home to the assignment location instead of from one assignment to the next? So this is probably uh, a legal reason why they do this. So especially if you're taking a contract not with the same company. So say you took your last contract with one company, you take a new contract with the next company. They have no way to substantiate where you were on your last contract. So all they have is your home address and the address of the location. So they can't legally reimburse you from one assignment to another because they didn't place you in that assignment. Um, if it is with the same company, it might be for the same reason. Maybe they've been advised by their legal counsel that they can only reimburse from tax home to assignment location and each contract is its own thing. Um, and also, most travelers go home between assignments. It's not always, especially if you're real far from home, but for us, a lot of times we took breaks in between assignments, um, You know, at least a weekend or something, we might go home and then go to the next assignment. So maybe that's just what they're thinking is that you finish an assignment, you go home, and then you go to the next assignment and that makes it look more like you're a, uh, a legit traveler that you have a tax home you go back to and you go to the next assignment. So that's most of the reason for that. Okay, so the next question we got was about setting up a tax home. Um, and this person said, this will probably need to be answered by travel tax, but wondering if you might have some insight. Um, so if you guys don't know, we highly recommend um, in terms of setting up your tax home that you do set up a consultation with um, a, a site like travel tax or 
with another tax professional just to make sure you have it all set squared away. We're definitely not tax professionals, but we have interviewed and talked to tax professionals before, so we can try to um, relay some information from what we've heard from them. Um, so they were wondering about the two different options. So basically the two different options for setting up your tax home would be that you pay rent um, to someone's, well either one other option, a third option would be that you own your own place. But if you're gonna um, rent or stay at someone else's place, for example, your parents' house, you could set it up as though you're a renter and you would have a lease with them saying that you rent a space there. Um, or the other option would be to say that you are an adult member of the household and you are splitting the cost of the house evenly. Um, and this route is called shared expenses. So this person wanted to know, um, should my monthly contribution be factored by the number of bedrooms in the house, the number of people in the house, or the number of contributors to the mortgage? They wanted to figure out how to, how to do that. Yeah, um, so I think it's always good to talk to a tax professional uh, if you have any questions, but just based on what we've learned from tax professionals over the years, if you're going to go the shared expenses route, then you should take the number of adults in the house and divide all the expenses by the, the adults in the house. So you'd want to uh, divide like whatever the mortgage payment is, the homeowner's insurance, the uh, property taxes, if applicable for that state, the um, utility costs, so electricity, water, gas, all those costs divided by the number of adults in the house and that's how you would share expenses. And you might be wondering why would you go through all that hassle? Well, technically from the accountants that we've talked to, if you're going the shared expenses route, then the person that you're paying that money to doesn't have to report that on their taxes as rental income because it's a roommate. You're a roommate, you're splitting the expenses. You know, if you think back to college, if you had roommates, you're not, you're not counting their, uh, their rent payment on your taxes because they're a roommate. Whereas if you're actually renting a room, then for a set amount and has nothing to do with the expenses of the house, then technically the person is supposed to report that, report that on their taxes. So that's the understanding we have. You should divide the costs by the number of adults in the house and uh, that's how you should come up with the shared expense amount. Yeah, and so in some cases the shared expense um, route might actually be a little bit more expensive for you, but then it would keep your parent or your family member or your friend from having any legal implications for having a renter at their house. So if you set it up like you just pay them to rent a bedroom in the house, that might be cheap because in your area, they might rent bedrooms in a house on Craigslist for 300 or 400 or $500. And that might be a really cheap route. But technically, if they were to get audited, they should be showing that they're receiving rental income. Yeah. Um, so it, there's some pros and cons there, some things to consider. Yeah, and again, uh, always talk to a tax professional to make sure, especially if the person receiving the income is at all uncertain about that, make sure that that's legit because that's just what we've heard. Yeah, um, that site, Travel Tax, they offer what's called a tax home consultation. Um, I wish they had had that back when we started. Um, they kind of had it like sort of informally, but now you can just formally set up a tax home consultation phone call with them. It's only, I think, 50 or $55 and they'll go over your whole tax home situation with you and you say like, I want to do this and this is where I've been living and this is where I've been working and but I want to make this my tax home, what do you think about that? And then they'll give you legal advice about um, what would work for tax purposes. Yep. Okay, next we got a couple of finance related questions. So one of our course group members wanted to know about getting advice on setting up her own retirement account outside of her employer's retirement account. So for W-2 employees, which pretty much all of you guys are going to be W-2 employees through the travel company, um, 
there's there's really all you can do is 401k through your employer. You can do an IRA, an individual retirement account outside of your employer. Um, and those are really your only retirement account options. Um, if you were a self-employed, a 1099 employee, which some travelers do travel 1099, but it's much more rare, it's more difficult. Um, then you have other options like a self, uh, a SEP IRA, or you have a um, an individual 401k, things like that. But for a W-2 employee, your options are very limited. So most of you guys, uh, you're not gonna have the option to open these self-employed retirement accounts. So you're just, your only option is gonna be an IRA outside of your 401k. Yep. Um, and we just had a phone call, one of our mentorship phone calls with another one of our course group members, and she was in the same boat. She's like, I've been saving, but I don't really have any retirement accounts set up. How do I go about doing that? So depending on what level you're at in this stage of um, setting up you know, financial accounts and that sort of thing, um, just to break it down and make it really simple for you if you've never set up this on your own. Um, what Jared's saying is outside of if you want to do your 401k with your employer, outside of that, if you'd like to set up an individual retirement account, an IRA, you would just go to one of the organizations that offers that. So there's Vanguard, um, there's Fidelity, um, Charles Schwab. There's a few different ones. We do ours at Vanguard. So for example, if you want to do it at Vanguard, you would just go to Vanguard.com and you would select, you know, that you want to set up an individual retirement account. You create an account. It's kind of like creating an online bank account. You would just go on there and create an account and then you transfer money from your bank. So you'd link up your bank account to that account, transfer money in. Uh, Jared, what are the maximums for the IRA each year? IRA right now, I think it's 6,500 for this year. And uh, 401k, I think it's like 19.5 or something for this year. So if you want to set up an IRA for this year, you can contribute 6,500. And so you could transfer that all at once if you had it sitting in a savings account, or you could decide to transfer a little bit of time throughout the year um, to set up that retirement account for yourself. And then once it's in the account, it's kind of like a savings account. It'll be sitting there and then you have to elect to put it into investments within that account. So if you just leave it sitting there, it'll be basically like a savings account, but then you can go in there and click buy. And what buy means is that you're going to buy into some funds. Um, and so we typically have gone with, um, index just index, funds. index funds. Um, there's a lot more research you could do about investing if you want to learn more about it But quite often a lot of folks will just go with an investment um, an index fund and that's what they're gonna buy within their retirement account Yeah, um, and so that's kind of the, the simple version of just how to get started with that um, We have a lot of resources and a lot of books and uh, blogs and articles that you could read um, To learn more about how to invest from that point forward But that's the really simple way to just open your own retirement account to open an IRA I just realized uh, for 1099, I said it wrong. I said individual 401k. It's a solo 401k that you can open if you are a 1099 employee. Um, so your options as a 1099 are going to be solo 401k, SEP IRA, or a simple IRA. And uh, which one you would choose it depends on how much money you're making, if you have any employees, all that kind of stuff. Um, but like I said, for W-2, which 99% or maybe all of you are W-2, it's just, an, uh, just a regular IRA. And you can either choose traditional or Roth, depending on how you want to have it taxed. So this next question piggybacks off that same one. So this person wanted to know, um, after maxing out my Roth, which is an IRA, the Roth IRA, and my 401k, what are some of your other preferred investments or passive income sources that you recommend looking into? So um, this is great. If you're already at the point where you've already maxed out a 401k, you've already maxed out an IRA, so say that means for you, you've contributed about $25,000 to investments already this year. That's wonderful. Yeah. Now you're like, I've got all this 
other money because that's what a lot of us want to do um, who are trying to become financially successful travel therapists. Like we're trying to get to financial independence. We're trying to max out our investment accounts really early on and put so much money into savings because we're making a lot as travel therapists, right? So you want to put a lot in savings, but you don't just want it sitting in a checking account, right? So now what do I do after I've put that first 25000 away? Where do I put the rest? Yeah, um, I would say first thing is congratulations because probably 1% of people max out both their 401k and IRA in a year. Like that is an extremely small number of people. So to be able to do that, you're already way ahead of most people. That's really good. Um, I would say another account, if you if you happen to have a high deductible insurance plan, an HSA is the best account that you can contribute to, in my opinion. Because whereas a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, you either get taxed on the money up front or when you withdraw. An HSA, when you put money in and you use it on qualified medical expenses, you don't get taxed on it when you put it in or when you take it out. So an HSA, and you can invest that money, um, depending on who, what, what account you're using for the HSA, you can invest that money in index funds as well. So an HSA, I think, is my, my preferred account if you have access to it to max that out first. So um, if that's an option, do that. If not, then your options are basically a brokerage account, so an after-tax brokerage account that you can open, um, or you can invest in things like real estate, or you can go crypto or something like that. So your options are, you don't have a ton of options um, for what to do with money after that. So a brokerage account probably is what most people are gonna do, and you can invest in that just like you would anything else. You can invest in index funds or bonds or um, real estate indexes or whatever you wanna invest in. Um, but besides that, maybe real estate, there's a bunch of different options with that. You can either buy, um, short-term rentals, you can buy long-term rentals, you can you can um, invest in some of these sites now that are like crowdfunded real estate, so you basically are buying fractional ownership of a property. So um, I would say those are probably the next steps. Yeah, I would say um, for us personally, we've, we've got IRA, we've got 401k, we've got HSA, um, we have some money in the, the crowdsourcing um, that you were talking about. It's called Fundrise. Fundrise. That's what we use. Um, where it's like a crowdsourcing way to invest in real estate. We originally thought about doing rental properties. Um, we've decided not to go that route right now, um, but that is an option that some people think about or house hacking in some other way. We do house hack. We do have a renter um, in, our, in our place right now, and we've had renters in the past, so we've house hacked in that way to make some income off of our property, um, but we haven't invested in any other yeah. rental properties. Yeah, and that's something you can think about too, is just buying a personal residence that you can rent out rooms in while you're traveling to generate some income and then hopefully have appreciation in that property over time. So something else you can consider, but I would say probably the, the lowest hassle, easiest way is to just open a brokerage account and invest in index funds just like you would in your 401k and your IRA. Mm -hmm. And for those of you guys who are newer to investing, your brokerage account is basically the same. It works the same, except that there's no tax advantages um, because you're not putting it in like a 401k or something that has like these tax advantages. Now, the benefit of doing a brokerage account, yes, you're putting in money that's already been taxed, but you can take it out at any time, whereas- And um, there's no limits. You can put unlimited amounts of money in there. Yeah, so you just can only, for a 401k or an IRA, only put a certain amount each year that they're gonna give you these tax breaks on, and then you can't touch it um, with some exceptions. For the most part, you can't touch it until retirement age, whereas a brokerage account, that's just like having a regular old investment account where you're investing in stocks and bonds and index funds and all these things. Um, and you can just put the money in as much as you want, take it out whenever you want. For the most part, if you're doing it as a long-term investment, you should just put it in and leave it and have a strategy there. Um, but that's just a brokerage account. I never really knew that's what it was called until um, I learned more about it, but that's just basically an investment account. Yep. Um, so those are some ideas for further investing.
Um, oh, I think the other thing I was going to say are some high yield savings accounts. You might consider that it's not really an investment necessarily, but if you do have extra cash sitting around, try to see instead of just having it in your checking account, see if there is a high yield savings account you could at least have it in. Yeah, for the last couple of years, that really wasn't an option, but now there are some savings accounts paying two and a half or three percent interest, which is not too bad. Um, Definitely better than having it just sitting in your checking account. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but always make sure to have some, at least in an emergency fund, that you can easily access in a savings or checking account. Um, don't put all your money into investments. Um, definitely keep some. Okay, um, another finance question. Um, this is about credit card hacking and using points. Um, this person wants to know, are there any hacks for using Chase points for flights that you know of? So your options are fairly limited. Um, the the always the best value for any transferable points like Chase or American Express City are to go with transfer partners. And with those transfer partners, you're relatively limited. So uh, for Chase, for domestic flights, almost always Southwest is gonna be the most cost efficient way as long as you're near an airport where you can fly Southwest and you're going to a destination where Southwest flies to, um, Southwest is the best value in my opinion. Um, for international flights, for Chase points, you can pretty much only transfer to United. They have some other partners that I haven't really used a ton, but I transfer uh, a lot of points to United for international flights. And with those, you can usually get pretty good value. Like um, I think our upcoming trip to Greece is United, and I think it was only 25,000 for a one-way flight from our home airport all the way to Greece, which is pretty good. So 25,000 points would be if you just cash that in for dollars, would be 250, and the flight is probably a six or six six hundred fifty dollar flight. So that's a really good value for those points. Um, so those would be my choices: either domestic, you transfer to Southwest, use them there; international, you transfer to United and use them that way. Um, the other thing that you could see is if you have the Chase Reserve card, you can sometimes cash those points out on the Chase portal for 1.5 cents per point, which is pretty reasonable. So if you have a flight that you're looking at and you can't get it through, United or uh, or Southwest, then you might want to go through the Chase portal, put in the destinations you're looking at, and see what it would be if you cash those points out for the flight through the portal. And uh, like I said, reserve, you get 1.5 cents per point. Uh, for the preferred, you get 1.25 cents per point, which still could be worth it depending on you know what you're looking at, if it's very specific, the flight you need. And I'm so thankful that Jared knows so much about credit card hacking and uh, using all these points because we've been stacking up points for so many years and signing up for so many credit cards. And it's so nice when you finally go to book a trip and you're like, I just, I usually ask Jared, I'm like, uh, what points do we have? Which hotels or which flights should I look at? Um, which points do I have available? And it's really come in very handy for us to be able to plan some long international trips. Um, but even on our like U.S. road trips too, we've used a lot of hotels and um, some flights and, uh, domestically. Yeah, and for you guys, if you haven't gotten into racking up Chase points or um, any credit card points in general, um, even if you don't travel a lot right now, if you're doing a lot of contracts, you're not taking a lot of time off, and if you are taking time off, it's like time with family at home, and you think, oh, I'll never use this. That's kind of how we were in the beginning. We didn't use many points back then. Between like 2015, 2018, we took like one international vacation. So, you know, you might have thought at the time, like, oh, it's kind of a waste to do this, but now we're using a ton of points. So racking up those points ahead of time really has paid off for us now. So it might be something you think about, you never know what's gonna happen in the future, and you might have a situation where you start doing a lot of international travel later on when you're in better financial shape, and then all those points will really help you out. Yeah, or, I mean, even for just like, 
even if you don't take off for several months at a time, even if you just take for like a one week vacation. I remember the first time we did that, I was so excited because Jared had really been doing a lot of research um, in our first couple of years of traveling about tra um, about credit card hacking and points. And to me, it didn't really, I didn't see the point back then. I didn't really understand, but he was just working hard on these credit card rewards and saving up points. And then all of a sudden we were like, let's take a trip. It was just a one week trip. I think maybe even was like a six day trip. Um, and we were like, where can we go? And so he started looking at the points and was like, oh, we could go. Um, there's a hotel in Jamaica. We could go there. And I'm like, great. He literally booked the entire like six or seven day trip with points completely. And I was like, wait a minute, we're just here for free, basically? The flight, the hotel, everything. And I was like, this yeah. is cool. Yeah, that was that was actually uh, what really got me hooked on credit card points. That was 2016, our first, that was my first time out of the country, really. And uh, um, I think we ended up spending a total of $20 for, in total, like the whole time there um, for, because I think that the, the hotel even included a shuttle to from the airport to the hotel. We had all-inclusive. The biggest expense we had on that whole trip was parking at the airport back home, which is crazy. So um, they can really pay off. Yeah. So definitely try to get into that if you haven't. Um, you don't have to go crazy with it. We've told people before, if you're just getting started with credit card hacking, just do a couple a year, just like one to four cards a year. Usually the spending requirement is a three month window. So you can easily do um, one card every three months, which would be four cards for the year. Or if that seems like too much, just do one or two. Um, and you can really rack up a lot of points. Yeah, and any of you guys watching uh, live, if you have any questions or follow-up questions on anything we're talking about, feel free to ask those. Yeah. Okay, um, another kind of finance-related question. How should newer grads be thinking about buying property, especially given the current and probable future housing market and macroeconomic context? To me, interest rates um, above 5 to 6% seem just to make buying property an unwise financial decision right now. How should we be thinking about this and planning for it? I think that was Lucas's question. I just saw he joined too. So shout out to Lucas. Um, it's a good question. In my opinion right now, this is like the most unprecedented rise in interest rates in history. So we've seen interest rate rises like in nominal terms this amount before, but to go from such a low rate to, you know, it went from 2% to 7% in less than a year. That's, if you think about that in percentage terms, that's like a, 200, 300% increase, that's insane. So uh, that's crazy. So I would say right now to buy kind of seems crazy to me because what's happened is the rates are increasing way faster than prices are coming down. And the reason you know that's the case is because if you look at the number of new home sales like across the country right now, they're dropping quick. And uh, there's some charts showing that new home sales are down like, depending on the area, this is very area specific, but there's some areas that new home sales are down like 60 to 80%, which is very indicative of a softening housing market. So I think right now buying is kind of crazy. Um, with interest rates as high, buyers can't afford to buy houses, which means that the release valve has to be the prices of the properties. And so I think probably in the next three, three to six months, maybe a year, we're gonna see housing prices fall in a lot of markets, 30, 40% maybe. Um, there might be some markets that hold, hold up really well. So it all depends on where you're looking. I've seen some areas already already down 15 to 20%. So, and there's other areas where the prices haven't gone down at all. So it depends on where you're looking, but in my opinion, I would wait. I think this is probably a, a really difficult time to buy. And I just think that housing prices have not caught up with the rate increases. Um, and. I mean, it's clear that housing prices have been overinflated for quite a while. And the reason for that is because financing was so cheap and suddenly that's not the case. 
So prices almost have to come down. And the reason I say that it overinflated is if you use any metric like median um, or average income versus median home sales price, we're at all time high levels. So that tells you that the prices are insane and any, any rate above four or 5%, it's just not sustainable. So I think uh, I would wait probably three to six months, maybe even a little bit longer and just watch and see what happens because uh, right now it's definitely a buyer's market. There's a, in our area I've been watching and price cuts are happening all the time and I think that's gonna continue. So yeah, I'd wait right now. And that would be for people who are thinking about buying a personal home or an investment property? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. All right, so kind of along the same lines of housing, but a little bit different. This is more back related to traveling and finding housing. Um, I believe this question came from someone who has not started traveling yet. Um, cost and availability of short-term housing. Is it getting any better or worse um, in the current market? Um, so this person was wanting to know about finding housing as a traveler on assignment. So I actually um, made a poll in two of the groups that we run that have a couple thousand people in it because we have only done one uh, short-term housing search recently and that's when we were in Alaska. And for us, that was the most money by a long shot that we had spent on housing. But we weren't for sure, okay, is this only because it's Alaska and it's in the summer and it's a popular time, so forth and so on. So in our opinion, yes, the housing market um, in terms of short-term housing is up. But we wanted to make sure to get some feedback across a lot of a lot of folks. And over 70% of the people that we polled said that they felt like short-term housing is up. Now, that said, there were, you know, 30% that had kind of other responses. Um, some of them said it's about the same and it just kind of depends on where you're looking. But the majority of people did say that housing prices are up for finding short-term housing. Yeah. Um, and again, this is very area specific. So <clears throat> just like with buying houses, I said, we've already seen some places drop 60, 80% in number of sales each month. There's some places that haven't dropped at all. Rent prices are kind of the same way. Um, I've seen some groups that I follow, short-term rental groups, where Airbnb landlords and stuff, which is a good proxy for you know the people we wanna rent from, um, their bookings are down sometimes 60% on the year compared to last year. And they're looking at month over month numbers and they're like, where are all the renters at? Whereas there's other ones that are still increasing their prices. So this is very area specific. And I think this, this market environment for housing, especially both renting and buying, is the most area specific it's been in our lifetimes. So um, you really have to look at it on a individual basis, uh, what city you're going to, what's happening in that city, because you know there's probably some places right now that are at or below COVID levels. And there's probably some places that are still double COVID levels. Like if you're going to Austin or Miami, I think those cities had just massive booms of people moving down there for um, during COVID. And because of that, housing prices and rental prices are up. I think Miami, I heard it's up over 100% in one year, which is ridiculous. So it really depends on where you're going. Yeah, so it really just depends. We definitely heard from some folks that said they're still able to find affordable short-term rentals, but it always varies. Like we always talk about, and I know we go over it in the course when it comes to housing, it's going to depend on what you're looking for. If you're somebody who's looking for um, a two-bedroom place because you have a spouse or a pet or family with you versus somebody who's willing to rent maybe an efficiency or a room in somebody else's place, it's going to vary a lot. Um, so the feasibility of you know finding cost-efficient housing is just going to depend on the location of the job um, and what housing you need. But also, I would say on the flip side of that, for the most part, pay rates are still up for jobs. So 
for the most part, pay rates are kind of offsetting the higher rent costs, but not always. It's just really gonna depend on the job. Um, so it's probably a good idea if you are looking at a job, if you do have a potential offer, maybe run a couple quick searches. You won't always be able to determine your housing before you need to accept or decline the job, but you could at least get an idea of what's available. Furnish Finder is a really great place to just at least feel out what the availability is. Now, it doesn't always mean if you look on Furnish Finder, like if you contact the landlord, it might not be available. It might be taken by the time you need it, but it'll just give you a range or an idea of what might be some prices you see in the area. Yeah, one other thing I forgot to add about the whether you should buy right now. Um, so what you have to remember too about rates increasing um, for mortgages is that people aren't gonna wanna sell their house because if you sell your house and you had a mortgage, most people have refinanced down to a really low rate while rates were low. If they sell their house right now, they're moving to another house uh, where the rate's much higher. So say you had a $300,000 house and you're moving to another $300,000 house, there's some situations where you might sell your house, get rid of that loan, take out a new loan for the new house, and your payment might almost double. So if that's the case, why would you sell your house? And that's some of the argument for why people think that the, the market might not decrease. But the reason I think it will decrease is because if you look at the number of new homes under construction right now, we're at all-time highs. We're over 2007 to 2008 levels, which were already insane. Uh, there's something like 1.6 million new constructions right now. So what that means is for existing home sales, numbers are going to be down a lot because most, most sellers are not going to want to sell and move to a new house at a higher rate. Most buyers can't afford houses at this rate. So if there were no new homes coming on the market, then we'd be at a standstill. Buyers can't buy high prices. Sellers don't want to sell at low prices. But because of all these new homes coming on the market, I think that's gonna push prices down and you'll see uh, prices decrease quite a bit. So I just wanted to add that. Another thing uh, about the rents we asked about um, was uh, rentals for campgrounds. Oh, because... hang on, before we get into that. Okay. Um, I wanted to answer a couple more things just about, we got a couple questions about finding housing. So Megan says, um, can you list some different sites or places where you look for short-term housing other than just Airbnb and Furnished Finder? Um, so we, I know we have this in the course in the housing section and then I'm looking real quick for, um, I believe we also have it on our article, our housing one-on-one article. Um, so Airbnb and Furnish Finder. In fact, Airbnb is really not as good as it used to be for short-term housing. A lot of travelers are contacting Airbnb hosts and then trying to talk to them on the side to negotiate a rate outside of what it's showing on Airbnb because if you go through Airbnb um, for long-term rentals, um, there are a lot of fees associated with it and quite often it's charging you based on the nightly rate they have listed and it's like an exorbitant amount. Like we were looking at some of the Airbnbs um, for our Alaska housing search and it was gonna be like 10 to $20,000 a month based on what they had listed, it was ridiculous. So some people will send a private message and say, would you be willing to do you know, a set monthly rate for a healthcare professional? But Furnish Finder is definitely your best bet. Some people have had uh, luck on Craigslist. We have had luck on Craigslist before. You just have to be aware of scams. Um, be a little yeah, more Yeah, we've wary. actually found, I think, two or three places on Craigslist. So, yeah, it's not as good as it used to be, but uh, you can still find places. You just, yeah, you have to be very careful. There's a lot of scams on there now. Some, some other options would be uh, websites like VRBO, which would be kind of similar to Airbnb. Um, Facebook Marketplace, searching on there, it's like a easier to vet um, Craigslist, really. Um, Facebook groups, so there's a lot of Facebook groups for travel nursing housing is usually the search term you want to use as well as travel therapy housing. Um, you can also use some other strategies like searching um, apartment complexes. Some people will go with um, unfurnished places 
and just try to negotiate a three or six month lease. But apartment complexes aren't usually very flexible, so that's not always your best bet, but you could look into it. You could also search for um, short term uh, corporate housing or extended stay motels. Yeah, I would say another good option is to, if you have an assignment location in mind already, say you've already interviewed or something like that, ask the manager. We've done that before and sometimes mm -hmm. they have an idea of maybe someone in the facility might be running a place or something like that. So ask the manager if they have any options. And then another thing that you could do is reach out to local realtors in that area and ask them. But yeah, I really think um, VRBO, Airbnb, Furnish Finder, those are gonna be the places where you have the most options. Yeah, I know some other people have also mentioned looking at um, like colleges in the area. If there are any colleges near where your contract might be, there could be sublets um, or there could be rentals through available through um, the housing for the university. So sometimes there's Facebook groups for that or sometimes you can go to the university websites and find out information like that. Um, like Jerry said, you could also talk to HR. You could contact a local realtor and see if they know of anything. We actually, um, people talk so like sometimes even just talking to a realtor they may not have something listed but some of them have rentals themselves or have friends who have rentals and they might be like oh yeah my friend has a rental and they've rented to travel nurses before so sometimes if you say travel therapist they're not as familiar with that but if you say travel nurse say oh it's like a travel nurse they might be like oh yeah travel nurses we've had travel nurses in the area before um, so there's a lot of different um, avenues you can go uh, if you ask around yeah so a similar question, Paloa asks, I hope I'm saying that right, Paloa says, is there a website to see what is an average rent cost for a location or state? I think Zillow has that information. If you look up specific areas, it'll tell you what the average rent is. Um, but it's hard because it's really difficult to compare one place to another. You know, there's differences in square footage and number of bedrooms and area of town and all of that. So it's hard to you can come up with an average, but it's hard to see like exactly what it would be for whatever you're looking for, short-term rental, one bedroom, whatever. But um, I also think if you look it up that way, it's probably gonna be for long-term, like if, if you look up average rent, it's probably gonna be for a 12-month lease. Yeah. So I think your best bet for getting um, a quick look, like what I would personally do is if I was trying to decide, oh, my recruiter has this job for me, it sounds really great, um, but they need an answer in 48 hours. I would personally go to Facebook Marketplace, do a quick search, go to Furnish Finder, do a quick search, and just see what's on there. Now, it doesn't mean you've had time to contact and call all these places and see if they're actually available, but at least will give you an idea of whether you're going to be able to find something reasonably or not, or if it's just gonna be out of the question and it's like, there's nothing there, or it's way too expensive, I'm gonna pass on this job. Yeah. Yeah, so I would use those um, quick searches. Okay. So um, the next thing that we were going to get into was talking about um, RV as an option. So um, any updated thoughts on RVing versus short-term rentals um, with the current market? So is it a better idea to get into RVing to save money um, versus short-term rentals? So overall, I would say that both are up right now um, since COVID. So short-term rentals are more expensive and campgrounds are more expensive. Both of them have higher demand. In terms of which one's up more, again, very area specific. There are some campgrounds that are still, they haven't raised their rates at all. And there are some areas of the country where rent prices and house prices haven't increased that much. But there, like I said, there's also places where they've gone up over 100%. So very area specific in terms of which one will be better. I would say average, they're probably increased about the same. One thing that has increased a lot more in terms of um, <laughs> if you wanna travel in an RV is the price of the RV. So campground hasn't increased that much in a lot of areas, but the cost of used RVs are up significantly. 
And I think that is starting to correct a little bit. Um, they kind of went up with the price of used cars. And I'm sure a lot of you guys know used cars prices have been up. Uh, I think the average was 60% since the pandemic started, which is insane. And I think RVs were about the same for quite a while. And those prices are starting to normalize now. They're coming down a little bit, but they're still elevated. So if you are considering RV, um, you have to think about how much more now an RV would cost than it would have two years ago and not just include the campground rent. Yeah, but from folks that we talked to um, who are currently RVing, a lot of them said they still felt like it was very financially feasible for their situation. But like we've talked about before, um, and we're actually going to do a video soon, as soon as we get a chance to do our next um, regular live video, we've been meaning to do an updated one about RVing. So stay tuned for that because we'll do a whole thing about it. But in general, it, it's not always going to be financially feasible for everybody because you have to consider the upfront costs. Um, if you're a solo traveler versus traveling with a family, a lot of people choose to do it because it's more feasible with the family or with pets or both or with a spouse than it is finding short-term rentals that fit their needs. Whereas as a solo traveler, you might save a lot more money just renting a room in a house or renting a solo place by yourself. Yeah, if you're a solo traveler and you're able to rent a room in a house that's okay with you, I think that's always gonna be cheaper um, when you factor in all the costs. If you're a couple, most couples don't wanna rent a room in a house then that can push things in favor of an RV a little bit. But then again, it depends on how long you plan to travel. We always talk about that. If you're only gonna travel for a short period of time, then it doesn't give you much time to make up the cost, the upfront cost of the RV. And a lot of times you have depreciation on the RV, which takes up a lot of the cost. So if you're only gonna travel a short time, usually it doesn't make sense to buy an RV. But if you're gonna travel for five years, then it makes a lot of sense. The other thing is like Whitney said, if you have pets, it's a lot easier with an RV than to try to find a place and then usually have additional pet fees and you have other things that you have to worry about like um, is there going to be damage that then you get charged for when you leave and stuff like that. And if you have kids, then uh, you know that makes finding short-term housing significantly more difficult so an RV might make sense there. So those are some considerations to think about. So the next question we got about RVing was what has been your average commute time with short-term rentals versus RV? So we've always been very conscientious of our commute time because yeah. we think it's such a waste of time to have a long commute. We hate it. We hate traffic. We hate driving. So we've always been very conscientious about choosing either RV parks or short-term rentals. And we've almost never had a commute longer than 30 minutes. One time I had a long commute and that was only because Jared had a really good job opportunity and he wanted to extend. And it kind of put us in a bind where I needed to find a new job in that same area. And so for a little while, I had kind of a long, like 45 minutes to an hour commute, but that was a very short time. Everything other than that, we've always had less than a 30 minute. We've had anything from a five minute commute to a 20 minute commute, I would say the majority of our contract. In our last contract, I could walk to work. So uh, it was very short. I've never had a commute more than, I think 20 minutes was the max for me. And that, and it really is about the same whether we've stayed at a campground or stayed at a short term rental. Um, but we also, like Whitney said, we're very selective in the contracts we choose based on knowing if there's uh, housing options that are not gonna be far away. Mm -hmm. We won't take a job and then have to drive 45 minutes each. So we've purposely kind of done it that way, um, but you guys can do that as well. Yeah, and with that said, if you're looking at the RV option, it may limit where you choose to go. So you might not be able to go to a city because there might not be an RV park nearby. And if you really wanna work in a city and the nearest RV park is an hour away, well, then that's gonna be a problem and it's up to you whether that commute time is worth it. But yeah. we've been able to find jobs in areas where an RV park was 30 minutes or less, always. Okay, um, any recent job market trends since our last update? 
No, everything's pretty much the same. We just did an update two or three weeks ago um, at the beginning of October, so not much has changed since then, so I would refer back to that video. Yeah, still still some really high-paying jobs. Um, I would say the average has started to trend down a little bit still, um, but there's still a lot of jobs open, especially for PTs, SLPs, so it's still a great market, still better than we ever had um, pre-COVID. So good time to travel and uh, not, not any big changes. We'll probably do another update in a few months, but things are about the same. Yep, and along the same line, somebody else asked um, about the travel job market this winter. I took a, a perm job back home for a little bit to be in your family, but now I'm considering getting back to travel toward the end of the year or next year. So same thing, and I think this person was a PT who asked this. Absolutely, the job market we fully anticipate it'll still be great into the beginning of next year. So still yep. a great time to get into it. Okay, are you generally optimistic, pessimistic, or neutral about the future of therapy reimbursement considering the context of perpetual rising cost of living and inflation? Um, I think it's very difficult to be optimistic about reimbursement rates because we graduated now seven and a half years ago and it's been nothing but declining reimbursement rates since we graduated. So I don't see any reason to be overly optimistic about it. And I would say overall pretty pessimistic because healthcare costs are rising and um, insurance companies and Medicare, Medicaid are all looking for ways to cut costs. And uh, you know, outpatient services, rehabilitation services are kind of like a low hanging fruit where they can kind of cut costs, even though it's probably not in the best, the patient's best interest, you could probably cut costs somewhere else and it would be you know, better overall for the patient, but it's easier to justify that thing than to like decrease costs in the emergency room or urgent care or you know, medications or something like that where uh, it could literally be life or death for people. So um, I, I would say I'm overly pretty, overall pretty pessimistic about it. Uh, and then I also made an article, read an article, I think it's been three or four months ago about inflation and how I think that inflation is actually going to be a net negative for a therapist pay because the costs, especially for outpatient, because the costs are going up for the clinic owners. Their rent's higher, their electricity prices are higher, their uh, support staff costs are higher, and reimbursement rates are staying the same or decreasing. So if your costs are higher and your expenses are, uh, your expenses are higher, but your reimbursement's the same, you have to cut costs somewhere, and therapist pay is potentially where they're gonna cut costs. Um, you know, they can decrease their margins only so much before they go out of business. So if it's between cutting therapist pay or going out of business, they're going to cut therapist pay. So I think that inflation is also going to be a downward pressure on pay for therapists. And uh, yeah, both of those things combined are not good. So I'm looking at this and I'm realizing I just put those two questions back to back. I put how is the job market outlook back to back with what's what's the outlook and are you pessimistic about it reimbursement. So how do we reconcile these two things? Yeah, those are not exactly comparable because for the job job market for therapy uh, or for travel therapy, it's great. There's so many job options right now. Um, that, that could stay the case forever. This could be the new normal or this could just be a temporary blip and you have to take advantage of it now and there might be a time later where their pay packages drop below where they were before COVID. So, so what I would say about it, because um, I was brainstorming, um, while you were talking before and explaining why you're pessimistic about it is probably we're more pessimistic about the job opportunities and the wages for permanent therapists unfortunately yeah. i do think there's always going to be a need for travel therapists and it's going to be in your benefit to be a travel therapist if you want to make higher income because there are basically you're going to be more willing to go where the jobs are paying higher there's going to be certain circumstances with certain hospital systems certain 
home health companies, um, certain skilled nursing facilities, certain outpatient facilities where they have the opportunity to pay higher because of the need, because of the demand. And if you're willing to go there as a traveler, you can still make really good money as a therapist. Um, if you're somebody who's stuck in a permanent position in, a, in one location and you're not willing to move from that location and all the facilities in your area start driving rates down, well, then you're, you're really stuck. So yeah. you might have to look into some other options. Is travel feasible for you? Um, can I get a PRN job? Can I do a cash bay type situation where I'm not so reliant on reimbursement rates? So there may, you know, you may have to look into some other options. But in terms of travel therapists, there's always going to be a demand in certain areas where when push comes to shove, they have to have a therapist at that hospital. They have to have a therapist at that facility. And so they'll find a way to pay more to get somebody to come there. So if you're in a situation where you are mobile and you are flexible, you can go to where those higher rates are available. Yeah, and in addition to that, there, I mean, facilities, hospitals, skilled nursing, um, an outpatient clinic that doesn't have a therapist, an evaluating therapist, they have to have someone. And there's situations where for travel contracts, the facility can actually lose money on that traveler and it's still be in their benefit because say, I've talked about this before, but say you bring in a, a traveler that's a PT that can do evaluations and they're mostly doing evaluations, re-evals, re discharges, and you have PTAs that can treat, do the treatments and they can make money, enough money off the PTAs doing treatments to pay more and actually lose money on the, the traveler. They can't do that long-term though. So for a permanent therapist, they're not gonna hire someone where they're losing money. Uh, but for a traveler, for three months, they might do that. So the, the pay rates are not necessarily going to be always correlated. So I could see a situation where travel pay stays fairly consistent, maybe goes down a little bit, whereas permanent pay decreases um, just gradually over time, which is terrible for therapists. Yeah, so I mean, time will tell, but unfortunately we, you know, in talking, you know, we've been in, we've been in the therapy industry um, since we graduated seven years ago. So we don't have a ton of perspective beyond seven years, but we have talked to people who have been in the staffing space for decades. We've talked to therapists who have been travelers or been permanent therapists who've gone back to traveling um, for decades. And unfortunately, a lot of them say that, you know, reimbursement has only gone down, that pay has only gone down, that some of them are still seeing the same pay for new grads and for experienced therapists and for travel therapists now that they were seeing 20 years ago even though cost of living is higher now and um, uh, cost of school is higher now and things like that. So it is definitely unfortunate, but um, if you guys want to see a change there, the, I think the only thing we can really do um, is to advocate, is to talk to your you know governing body for PT, for OT, for SLP, talk to Medicare, write letters, talk to legislatures, try to see if there's any way we can continue to drive these professions forward so that there won't be all these cuts from insurance companies um, or the government um, on our wages, or you have to look at a, a business model or a way to make income that isn't so tied to what a third party is gonna reimburse you. Yeah, um, I mean, I've talked to some older therapists that were saying that they've made the same or more in the 90s based on you know what they what they were making at permanent jobs versus what new grads and therapists are making at, at permanent jobs now. And if you think about that in inflation-adjusted terms, that's basically they were making double back then what we're making now. And that's really sad. Um, but you have to remember that it's not just therapy specific. There's, uh, I mean, almost all of healthcare is complaining about decreasing wages. And if you go to any group, PA groups, nurse practitioner groups, uh, PCP groups, if you go to vet groups, like they're all complaining about de declining reimbursement and lower wages and seeing more patients. And 
And if you think about it, um, the reason that PCPs and a lot of physicians are still able to make a decent amount of money is they're seeing a ton of patients. They're seeing some cases 30, 40 patients a day, whereas us as therapists, we don't wanna do that. Um, there might be a time in the future where that's the, the business model and that's how it goes, but um, hopefully that won't be the case. Yeah, so like I said, either you know advocate to try to find a way to get those reimbursements back up or find a way to earn income and make a business for yourself that's not so tied to those third-party reimbursements. Yeah. Okay, just a couple more questions here. These last two are scenarios. So one, um, one therapist who's in our course group says, I've been working as a full-time permanent salaried employee for the entire 10 years that I've been out of school with the same employer. <coughs> Derek, can you actually read this one? Sorry, guys. I've caught a little bit of a cold and my throat is bothering me a little bit. All right. I've been working as a full-time permanent therapist salaried employee for uh, the entire 10 years I've been out of school with the same employer. I've decided to strike out and travel for the financial benefits and change in life situation. Starting the process of applying for additional licenses and one state in particular states it will take eight to 12 weeks to process. As part of the application, they want an employer verification form filled out as, uh, as part of the process. I was hoping to have, a, uh, have licenses in hand before I attend my resignation and tell them my plans, but I'm not sure uh, I see a way around this. Thoughts? Thanks so much. I'm a little over halfway through the course. I'm very glad I invested in it. Although I've chatted a lot with a friend that has been doing travel for years. This is just so much more in depth and I think that will be vital um, coming out on top with this complete paradigm shift for me. Um, so I put some thought into this. So there's a few options. So one, if you're worried about you know resigning from your job and you don't wanna let your employer know yet, maybe you could look at just taking your first travel job um, in your home state where you already have a license to avoid that hurdle before going ahead and um, pulling the trigger and putting in your resignation, that sort of thing. And that would also ease your transition into starting. The other option would be if, if for some reason you really wanna get a license in another state, maybe look at a licensing state where they don't require an employer verification. Not all states do require that. So that'd be your second option. Third option, um, see if that employer verification could maybe be done by a coworker instead of a manager, um, in case you don't wanna let your manager know, but you don't mind letting your coworker who you trust know. Um, but last option, I mean, obviously, if it's absolutely the state you want to go to, if there's no way to get around it, you may just unfortunately have to let your boss know sooner than, than what you thought. But I would try to go with those first three options um, if possible. Yeah, I would say the, the, the easiest thing would just be to do at least one contract in a state that doesn't require that. And that's not a common thing. I actually had never heard of uh, employer verification form filled out. Um, so that, I'm not sure what state that is, but that's definitely not a common thing. We've never done that before. So if you can take a light or take a get a license, take a job in a state that doesn't require that, and then just get that license while you're working on that first contract, I would say that would be the ideal. But yeah, like Whitney said, if there's no other option, then you know you can just explain the situation. Um, hopefully, it doesn't take six or uh, eight to twelve weeks. A lot of states they'll um, overestimate just because things could move slow. But I would say it's pretty rare for it to take that long. We've only had two licenses that took that long, and there were Hawaii, Alaska that were. You know, those are always harder to get anyway. Yeah. Okay. And then you want to read that last scenario. All right. Um, I saw that. About uh, Mark Okay. I just finished module three of your comprehensive course, but I, I'm thinking about starting travel in January. So I feel I should be further along in the course and speaking with a recruiter already. I originally spoke with a couple of recruiters you guys gave me this past spring, but I don't know if it's too late to reach back out to them. I'm from Michigan, thinking about a first assignment in Michigan or Florida. Haven't got to the point of figuring out getting a license in another state yet. 
I'm so excited to have you guys as a resource and your course, but between both of my jobs, I'm having a hard time going through it all, and I just feel a little scared to take this leap of faith. Sorry for this book. I just wanted to be honest and let you know where I am in my journey and how, uh, how to best get my butt moving forward. So um, we received this question um, from one of our course members, and I actually sent her a long answer, but I wanted to answer it for you guys here too. So um, in terms of feeling overwhelmed and not knowing where to start, um, I, I can totally understand that. I can totally understand like it's, it's scary to take that leap of faith to go ahead and move forward, but you just have to look at it like, okay, I've set a goal for myself. Um, I really want to do this, uh, you know, new year, new goal, new me. Um, it's, it's a great time right now to go ahead and reach back out to those recruiters. Um, don't worry that you haven't talked to them in six months or don't worry even if you're somebody else who's in the same situation who hasn't even talked to a recruiter yet. It's fine. They do it all the time. They are happy to talk to you no matter if you're ready to start tomorrow or if you're ready to start in six months. They're excited to talk to you. So absolutely reach back out to those recruiters. Um, for somebody else who's listening who this isn't your exact scenario, let us know if you need contacts to get in touch with some recruiters. They'll be so excited to help you. If January is your goal, right now is a great time to talk to them and they'll help you to get a game plan in place. For your particular situation, because you're feeling really overwhelmed and just feeling like you're not gonna actually be ready to start here in a couple of months, my best advice for you would be to take a job, take your first travel job in your home state. Then you don't have to worry about that hurdle of getting a new license right away. It'll take a, a lot of the stress out because you'll just take your first travel job within a few hours of home, within one or three or five hours of home in your home state you'll be in familiar territory it'll seem less stressful you won't have to get a new license all you'll be basically doing is putting in your notice at your current job and just taking a new job a couple hours away and that'll help you get started that'll help you to really understand and immerse yourself in the process and the recruiters will help you and then once you're already on that contract now you've freed yourself of the burden of taking that first step now it'll all make a lot more sense you'll be like, oh great, I'm on this contract, now I'll just start thinking about my next contract from here. I'll start thinking about my next license from here. You don't have to go and dive in head first and move all the way across the country for your first one. I would say dip your toe in by taking your first job in your home state. Yeah, I think that's really good advice for anybody that's hesitant to start. That's exactly what we did starting out. We were nervous. Um, we started as new grads, like we've said um, multiple times, but I was very nervous. I didn't know if it would go well. I, I didn't know, we didn't know what what the average pay was. We didn't know anything back then. We talked to one therapist that had done it before and had since stopped traveling. So I didn't know if things had changed since they stopped traveling. Um, so yeah, we were very nervous and I thought, okay, we'll take a job a couple hours from home. If it goes terribly, we'll just, this will be one contract, we'll be done. We'll come back home and start anew. And I think having that fallback, it really helps. Um, I think if you move far away and you have a tough first assignment, it's really easy to be like, forget this, this is not for me. Whereas if you're only a couple hours from home, you have some familiarity and it's a lot easier. So I would say that's really good advice. The other thing I would say is, I'm sure Whitney has already looked at this. I'm not sure who sent this, but um, if it's been a while since you've talked to recruiters, the, the travel recruiter industry changes quickly. Um, we, we constantly are adding recruiters, subtracting recruiters, people are leaving. Um, you know, Just since COVID, we've probably had 12 to 15 recruiters stop recruiting. Um, so there's a potential that they're, they're not working there anymore, in which case, you know, it's, it's always a good idea at least to reach out back to us and say, these are the people you sent me to, would you still recommend them or anyone else? And then we can adjust if, if needed. Yeah, definitely do that. If you're somebody else who's listening to this and you're in that same situation, reach back out to us and say, would these still be the same ones that you'd recommend? Yeah. And we can let you know if they're still there or if maybe for some reason we don't recommend them anymore. 
Um, in this person's scenario, I did look back at the ones that she asked about and they're also active and they're actually three of our best ones that I would highly recommend based on this person's situation. Um, if you guys are worried or feeling uncertain, um, when you fill out our recruiter recommendation form, tell us as much information as you can about your situation because I read every one of them and I'm gonna match you with recruiters who I feel like are gonna work well for your situation. And luckily for this person, um, the three recruiters that we matched her with I absolutely feel like are gonna be the type to be very supportive and very much can walk you through step by step. Now, if you had reached back out and told me like you were really worried and I'd looked at the recruiters and been like, ah, those ones aren't necessarily gonna mentor you as well. Maybe this one would be better. But then I can let you know. Or, or there's some of you guys who might reach out and say like, I don't even need mentorship. I'm ready to hit the ground running. I don't have any questions. I just want the recruiter who has the highest pay or this or that we can kind of point you in the direction of which recruiter might be best for you. But for this person's scenario, I think the three that you are already talking to are great. They're gonna help you get started. Um, the last thing I wanna say about this scenario is um, this person who is feeling very overwhelmed about her situation because she's working full time and she's like, how am I gonna make time to go through this course? I'm only on module three. I think there's like 19, 18 or 19 modules. Um, I told her, you just have to set a goal. Um, it's 12 hours total. Just tell yourself, okay, this week I'm going to get through two hours of the course. Um, I, look at it like graduate school. You know, in graduate school, you were really good at organizing your time and being like, I have to study for this test and I have to do this project by Sunday. So just look at it like, this is my goal. This is my life. This is what I want to do. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to take the, these two hours of the course. Just do it in bite sizes. We have 10 more weeks until the end of the year before you need to start your first contract in January. So you can do this. If it's your goal and you really want to get the most out of it, just um, look at it in bite sizes and make a plan. Yeah, um, and when you were talking about recruiters, uh, so there's a lot that goes into those recommendations she makes. And yeah, like any additional information you can provide because I've written before a couple articles now about the recruiter traveler relationship and how that varies drastically. So when, when you get us in the forms in, we're not just looking at what location, what setting, um, and you know what, what, what you're looking for in terms of benefits, pay, all that, but also you know there's different types of travelers. There's travelers that really need help and they're very fearful. Or there's travelers that just are ready to go, they don't care, they'll go anywhere. And based on that, there's recruiters that will work better well with those, or we've learned over time they work better with some, with some travelers than others because Every recruiter has their own personality. And some are like, I don't want to deal with someone that uh, they, they need a lot of help and they, they're very uncertain. And there's other ones that are like, oh yeah, I'll talk to them all day and really make them feel better about it. So it's not just what setting you want and what location you want. There's a lot that goes into that. So um, yeah, try to include as much information as you can and we'll try to get the best matches for you guys. Yeah, we've taken, um, I think Jared added up the other day. We, I mean, we work with currently about a dozen companies and I think we have over 50 recruiters. Yeah, I think it's 54 recruiters now. And all time, we've talked to over 100 recruiters to narrow it down to ones that we like. Um, I've spoken to every single one of them on the phone. I don't refer you to any recruiters that I've not spoken to personally on the phone um, who I, I know most of them very well. I know exactly what type of recruiter they are. I'm going to match you with somebody who I feel like is going to be a good fit for you. So to piggyback off that, um, I'm so sorry, I don't know how to say your name. I, now I'm looking at it closer and it, it might be more like Paula, P-A-O-L-A, -A, Paula or Paloa, um, says, I'm in the same boat and situation. I only have one recruiter that has kept in touch with me. I would like to get in touch with others. Thanks for the advice. Yeah, if that's the case, if you feel like you talked to some recruiters a while back, but only one of them's really keeping in touch with you, it could be that you just need to check back in with the other ones because some of them don't want to bother you. Um, Oh, she clarified how to say her name. Paola. Paola. 
Okay, Paola. Sorry about that. Um, it could be that they just don't want to bother you um, because they haven't heard from you in a while. Maybe they think you're not interested anymore. So it could just take you just sending one quick email to reconnect. But if really you're just not that interested because you feel like they haven't taken the time to care about you and you would rather just forget about those ones and start anew, let us know. We can happily offer you some of the recommendations yeah. um, for new recruiters. Yep. And, and like we said, we're always adding and subtracting. So there's always a chance that the ones, um, they're, they're not even people we work with anymore. They're not recruiting anymore. Things change really quickly. Yep, absolutely. So just let us know if you need some um, updated recommendations or contacts, we're happy to help. Yep, I think that's all the questions. If you guys have any more, feel free to leave a comment later in this video. We'll come back and uh, answer it in text. Um, we're gonna try, we're leaving in less than a week on our next international trip. Um, so we'll try to do videos while we're gone. It just depends always on the Wi-Fi situation, but uh, try to do one every couple weeks. Um, I want to do one coming up about contract cancellations. That's I've seen a lot of questions about that. We've get we've gotten a lot of questions recently about contract cancellations either during the contract or before the contract starts. Talk about some of the, what goes on there. Uh, if you guys have any other recommendations on things to talk about, we can go more in depth on. We would we always love those and. Uh, can always try to do a longer video on very specific things. Yeah, and we've been meaning to do that RV one for a while, so we need to do that RV one soon. But let us know if you have any questions. Um, for those of you guys watching that are in our course group, um, let us know if you'd like to set up your one-on-one -on -one mentorship call. We're happy to do that um, whenever. If you're someone who's not in our course group listening to this later on on our podcast, um, you can also set up a call with us, but we do charge for people who are not in our course group. Um, we do paid consultation calls. Um, but feel free to send us a message on social media or send us an email if you have any questions. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys. See you later. Have a good night.